Hey, it's Jen. Just a quick heads up before we start the show. We'll be discussing suicide, which may be distressing to some listeners and may not be suitable for young ears. If you or anyone you know needs to talk to someone, you can call the National Suicide Prevention Hotline at 1-800-273-8255 or dial the new number 988. And thanks for listening. Hello, I'm Julio from Downey, California, 988. It is a disaster. I am a United States citizen, Latino. Our community is being uh, left behind with this service. Uh, nobody answers. It's an automated system. Uh, real people, real staff need to answer that telephone uh, Hi, this is Shannon from Colorado. I am a chronic pain patient who is really struggling to get help with pain management, and so I have already called 988. I am not impressed with the service so far because there are time constraints that you have to fit into, and if you're having an emergency, it's not really something that you can sit and have the time to talk through. So I have struggled to find the usefulness of it, and I find the old suicide hotline more helpful. Americans have 911 for physical emergencies. Now there's 988 for a mental health crisis. Last month, 988 replaced the 10-digit National Suicide Prevention Hotline. Experts hope a shorter number will be easier to remember and faster to call. But the number isn't the only thing that's changed. The Biden administration is giving local local suicide call centers $432 million to beep up their services. That includes adding extra staff and Spanish-speaking counselors. It's a big cash infusion, but after that, states will need to fund the centers largely by themselves. With centers already stretched thin and staff turnover high, how long can these scaled-up centers operate? And will fears about police intervention prevent some of those most in need of help from calling at all? We'll answer all those questions and more after the break. I'm Jen White. You're listening to the 1A Podcast, where we get to the heart of the story. Be a part of future conversations by downloading the 1A Vox Pop app and leaving us a message. into our conversation about the new 988 Suicide and Mental Health Crisis Lifeline. Joining us is Erica Turner. She's Chief Clinical Officer at Community Crisis Services in Maryland, which takes 988 calls. She's also a licensed clinical professional counselor. Erica, welcome to 1A. Hi, thank you so much for having me. Also with us is Sonia Richardson. She's a licensed clinical social worker focusing on mental wellness and suicide-related behaviors. She's also the owner of Another Level Counseling and Consultation. It provides behavioral health care services in Charlotte, North Carolina. Sonia, thanks for your time today. Thank you for having me. And Aneri Patani also joins us. She's a reporter with Kaiser Health News, focusing on mental health and substance use. Aneri, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. So, Aniri, what are the differences between that 10-digit 1-800 National Suicide Prevention number and the new 988 number? In a lot of ways, they're very similar in that, you know, the Suicide Prevention Lifeline has existed for years. The idea is now the 988 number makes it shorter, easier to remember. Um, and there's there's also been, as you were mentioning, the influx of resources to support this number. So the hope is if it's easier to remember and more people are calling, 
at the same time, there's more support for uh, the local call centers that answer the calls so that more people are calling, more people get answers, and more people are connected to help. Um, so in a lot of ways, it's the same system that has existed, but hopefully um, beefed up and, and more accessible to folks. What improvements are they hoping to make? We mentioned increasing staffing, um, but $432 million is, is going into these centers to help them scale up their services. How else do they hope to expand? So the big vision with 988 is not just that it's a new number, easy to remember. It's really, you know, the the advocates that I've spoken with, the call centers, the government officials, hope that it sort of is a catalyst to reinventing the broader mental health system. So if someone calls and they're in crisis, not only should the call centers be staffed so that there's someone to answer that phone and speak with them, but for folks who need more than a phone call maybe, uh, are there mobile crisis teams in their community that can respond to their home and help them? Is there a crisis stabilization center so that person, maybe if they're not going to be safe in their home, can be taken somewhere that's not a hospital ER or, you know, wait where they may have to wait for weeks until a, a psychiatric bed opens up. Um, so it is, the thought is that it could lead to change that's much broader and really um, creates a more robust mental health system. I think a lot of that has yet to be seen, though. We have the 988 number right now. Uh, the other steps still are in the works or, or need to see if they will uh, follow through. Sonia, you're part of the 988 planning committee in North Carolina. What big questions were people asking in the lead up to the new number launch? Yeah, so uh, some of the questions that are being asked is, are there going to be uh, crisis counselors who speak different languages who can respond directly to the calls? Will there be will there be diverse counselors who are able to address some of the needs of diverse callers that are calling in? Um, also, uh, what will be their response? So when will law enforcement uh, be activated in these situations? When will they get involved and when will they be contacted? And then uh, one of the last questions are people calling into the line, will they be safe? So what is safety going to look like for them um, if they are at risk for suicide or self-harm? What is going to be that response and what is it going to look like and are they going to be safe? So Erica, you work at a 988 crisis center. Walk us through what happens when someone calls that number. When someone calls the number, we just answer, hello, Lifeline, how can I help you? And then from there, the caller can say whatever is on their mind. Um, uh, we, we pride ourselves in making sure that services are confidential, um, that our counselors are well-trained, that folks are able to just express whatever is on their mind and sort of have the outlet to be able to be not judged and to be able to just talk through whatever is going on. So, it's again, it's just a conversation we answer the line very um, anonymously and, you know, from there, folks can just say whatever is on their mind. So the person answering the phone is a licensed counselor? No, not always. So um, all of our counselors are trained call specialists. So the counselors are come in um, with the mobile crisis team. So we have licensed counselors who actually respond to people if that's needed. But on the phone, it's just, um, sorry, it's call specialists who are trained. Um, all of our call specialists go through a rigorous training to be able to accept calls. And so those are the trained folks that answer the lifeline. Give us a little insight in, into what that training looks like. Yeah, sure. So we um, make sure that we train our counselors and call specialists um, on mental health. Um, so uh, we want to make sure that people are well-versed on what the different um, uh, disorders are. We want to make sure that people are well-versed in what um, some of the symptoms might look like. And we, of course, definitely train folks to um, 
recognize the signs and symptoms of depression and suicide. We make sure that our folks um, will be able to have the best interventions to be able to share with folks and be able to de-escalate people that are in crisis that are calling. So that's the focus of the training, really just learning about mental health and the appropriate interventions to de-escalate folks that are in crisis. Erica, at your center, do you all have services for people who may be deaf or hard of hearing? Yes, we do. So we have actually what's called a, a language line that we have access to. And so the language line um, will definitely accommodate the deaf community, but also, um, you know, any language. So, you know, we spoke briefly about um, Spanish services. Uh, we actually have Spanish call takers. But in addition, if folks call, you know, needing like a, uh, was mentioned uh, services for the deaf community or for other languages like French or Amharic or whatever language, we actually have accommodations to be able to speak with them through through a language line. Aneri, can you give us some insight into whether these centers are, are able to accommodate the calls that are coming in or if they're working under time constraints? This seems to really depend um, center to center and state by state. So we're certainly hearing a lot of reports from certain states where the call centers are overwhelmed, they're understaffed. Um, even with, you know, the influx of cash, they're they're having trouble finding people who want these jobs. And then there is still, you know, the training process. And so there are some states where uh, I believe this is um, data, I believe, from the first part of 2022. So before the new 988 number launched, but even so, um, certain states were responding to just 20% of their calls, like that's what they were able to answer, versus other states were more at 90% of calls they're answering and, and responding to. So there is a huge variation in how well-staffed and uh, responsive these different centers are, depending on where they're located. Um, and so I'm sure when folks are calling, they could get a variety of different um different experiences, including some that they're not getting their calls answered or their texts answered. Um, the text services have also had a, a lag in a lot of places. If if, focus, if the centers are focusing on calls, they don't have folks to respond to the texts. Um, so there's certainly, you know, as all these calls are coming in with the 988 number, um, there are centers that I'm hearing from that are having a hard time keeping up. A calls to the hotline jumped 45% the week the new number launched. Now it's been active for a month, so we checked in with Health and Human Services Secretary Javier Becerra. 29 states haven't enacted legislation to fund the call centers long term. 1A producer Michelle Harvin began by asking, what's next for them? That's the $60 million question, maybe even more. I mean, given that President Biden gave us some $432 million in his first 18 months as president to invest, to bring all these operations that were run locally together and stitch, stitch them together. Um, I, I hope that every state will continue to make progress uh, and make the investments to run these operations. And so what happens if those states either can't or won't fund their centers. What happens if someone from one of those states calls the helpline? Well, we are standing up uh, as part of our federal investment backup operations to try to help some of the states as they transition to a, a more full 24-7 uh, wholesome operation. But at some point, the states will find that if they're not making the right investments, governors will, will, will find that they're not able to keep up. And what we don't want is for Americans to believe that if they turn to 988, they'll actually get some help. And if instead they're getting a busy signal or being put on hold, then not only will a lot of Americans probably 
turn away from 988, but we may actually lose some Americans. Staffing has been a concern for call centers, especially those in rural areas. And a report from the Wall Street Journal found that one in six calls to the National Suicide Hotline weren't answered in time just due to the strain on centers. And your department is anticipating even more people will use this 988 number. How concerned are you about staffing? Well, we know that there is a shortage of workers in so many different fields and industries as we speak. And we know there's been high burnout in the healthcare field for some time since COVID has been around. And so we're hoping that there will be Americans who believe this is a calling to be there to help answer the call when someone is in distress. And, you know, it, it, it does take a commitment, especially by governors, that their states will live up to the obligation to answering when people are calling in need. There's another concern that we're hearing from both the queer and black community about 988 and the possibility of police intervention and call tracing. How are you addressing concerns from people who say they don't want to call if any involuntary police involvement is even a possibility? I believe less than 2% of calls are routed to 911. And my understanding is the majority of even those few calls go to 911 with the consent of the uh, person who made the call. And so in very few cases, very rare cases, will law enforcement be required. But remember as well, Michelle, that if someone is calling in and they're about to do the wrong thing, they really will go through with the suicide. And there's nothing the counselor has been able to do to try to persuade that person otherwise. Uh, That counselor may make the decision to reach out to 911 without the consent of the caller to try to get the caller help before the caller makes the final move in the wrong direction. So 988 will be a resource for people who need to talk in the moment. But how are you and your department thinking about the mental health needs of Americans beyond the ability to call a hotline in a crisis? If we do this right, uh, 988 simply becomes the first contact, the first place you get to on a road to recovery. And that will mean we've got to really beef up our uh, services on the mental health care side, substance use side, so that we can really handle some of these calls. Because if someone is willing to take that, uh, make, you know, take that step to actually reach out in the time of crisis, that means they are trying to get themselves to the right place. And they are willing to reach out for some help. We don't know if we'll have another chance to reach that person. And so we've got to make it a good contact with a good outcome. That was Health and Human Services Secretary Javier Becerra talking about the new 988 Suicide and Mental Health Crisis Lifeline. And here's a voicemail we got from Marty in Cincinnati. I know in the past when I have had kids call the Suicide Prevention Hotline, they are asked if they're suicidal and if they say yes, they're directed to call 911. The problem is they're really kind of in that place where they're not ready yet to call 911. And so that just shuts them down and then they're left without help at all. So I'm hoping the new 988 number will give them a little more screening or chat a little more with them before they just immediately send them to 911. Erica, what can you tell us about the screening process for callers? 
Yes. So what we do when we accept our calls is we just talk to the person. Um, we hear their story. We listen. Um, once somebody, we ask all of our callers about suicide as well. Um, once somebody um, talk, starts to talk about suicide and they confirm that they have an active plan, um, even at that point, we don't send police. Um, what we are moving to as, you know, 988 um, is now in place and continues to beef up is a mobile crisis team response if that's needed. Again, very few of our calls even need an a, a in-person intervention. Majority of the calls, over 90% of the calls can be um, resolved via phone. It doesn't require an in-person response at all. So that's what we want people to know. We want people to know that, you know, there is a lot of screening involved. We're just talking to the person it's not until somebody really expresses a active safety concern that they have done something to hurt themselves, that they are going to do something to hurt themselves. And like Secretary Becerra said, you know, if, if our interventions uh, aren't successful, that's when we look at a in-person response, primarily first through a mobile crisis. Explain exactly what a mobile crisis team does. Who's on that team? Yes. So mobile crisis teams are made of behavioral health professionals. So you have licensed social workers, licensed counselors, peer support specialists, crisis technicians, and they all work together to be able to respond in person to a person that is experiencing some level of crisis, be it related to suicide or some other level of behavioral health. And they just go to the person and again, assess talk, um, develop a safety plan, connect to resources, be it a therapist, um, be it a psychiatrist, be it a a group, um, you know, whatever is needed. Um, And again, I just want to stress that very few of our calls end in hospitalization or law enforcement response. Sonia, you initially didn't suggest 988 to your clients when it first launched. Why not? Yeah, so good question. So uh, so I'm a uh, African-American therapist, primarily serve black and brown communities in my practice. Um, and uh, when I uh, when I thought about this a little bit more and, and I'm active on the um, coalition for our state, um, I do support 988. Yes. Um, but I have not had experiences uh, directly with 988. And um, from a community perspective, I have not heard comments from the community, from my community about um, its ability to really meet their needs. And so until I can verify that it's not potentially causing harm and that it's able to really meet their specific needs. Um, as a gatekeeper for my community for mental health, I just ha- I have been a little hesitant about referring. Hmm. Now, Blackline is a crisis hotline that never involves the police, but other crisis hotlines like the Trevor Project may call emergency services. To your mind, Sonia, if a hotline that reserves the right to involve the police dissuades people from calling, Do you think that does more harm than good or or do you see emergency services as just a necessary part of our mental health care system? Yeah, I I, I definitely see them as a I see them as a necessary part uh, when there is the potential for um, for for bodily harm. So when there when there is that high risk of harm, I I do see them necessary for that. Uh, However, we also know that in the midst of black and brown communities dealing with mental health crises, there has been historically the criminalization of their help-seeking behaviors. And so we know sometimes when we are contacting law enforcement to respond to their needs, instead of them being sent to an inpatient facility for services, sometimes they're rerouted to 
to jails and to incarceration. And so we know there is some, there's a lot of stigma, there's overcriminalization of our population. Um, and so it has some confounding factors, but at the end of the day, uh, I myself have involved law enforcement with some of my clients who are high risk and who I'm afraid of might seriously harm themselves. An area the concern over police involvement was a big part of your recent reporting. How do you think that concern is being handled by both HHS and local call centers? I think what I'm hearing a lot, what the you know folks who have raised some of these concerns are hearing a lot is is that it's very rare that you know this two um, percent number is, is often repeated that you know only two percent of calls um, to the national suicide prevention line um, involve emergency services, whether that is a mobile crisis team or uh, law enforcement. Um, so I think that is that is really the response, and I think that that's helpful and provides context. At the same time, the folks I'm hearing who are voicing the concerns say, you know, 2% of maybe 2.4 million calls is still, you know, it's it's for roughly 48,000 calls. And, and to them, to an individual who is fearful of, of police arriving at their door or is fearful of being taken to a hospital ER or a, a psychiatric hospital against their will, those experiences can be really traumatizing and, and they're concerned about that. So I think there's there's a balance there in terms of the response they're they're more hoping for rather than just saying it's it's rare, which is of course important um, to note. Is also um, more communities having the ability to have you know the mobile crisis uh, teams that Erica is speaking of that right now is not not a possibility everywhere in our country, particularly in more rural areas. Uh, but I think there are folks who would who would love to see more of that kind of response where, you know, if if the call uh, if the caller and the counselor cannot work out a safety plan and someone has to respond to keep that person safe, can it be mental health professionals? Can it be a peer support person? Can they be taken somewhere other than an ER, somewhere that might feel uh, more responsive to their needs in the moment? We're discussing the new 988 Suicide and Mental Health Crisis Lifeline. We'll be back with more after the break. Remember to connect with us, have your questions answered on future topics, or just to let us know what you think, tweet us at 1A. Let's get back to our conversation with this message from Crystal in Houston. I am far more likely to call the new number 988 than I am to call 911. I've just seen too much go wrong through the power of social media when it comes to black and brown people uh, and police involvement. So I am far more likely to want a mental health professional or somebody who's been trained to arrive on the scene. And I would be very concerned if there was involuntary police involvement Crystal, thanks for that message. We got this question from Ron in Chapel Hill, who says, how does the 988 line handle caller privacy? Does a caller become part of a database that will become an unwanted history for the caller? Erica, how is privacy handled? That's a great question. So um, again, confidentiality is our number one priority. Um, You know, we want people to feel safe when calling. Um, We don't ask for uh, you know, a lot of personal information. Um, we ask for first names just so we can, you know, properly greet the person. Uh, we do keep um, our information um, based on just phone number to be able to um, provide resources. That's another thing that is available to our callers is resources, be it for a mental health provider,
dinner, be it for a um, social group or, you know, whatever is requested. Um, sometimes people also call our line looking for basic resources. So we, we keep the information by phone number just to be able to send that information out anonymously as well, if that's what the caller is looking for. But confidentiality is a priority. We also got this email from Sharon who says, is the new hotline available to people worried that a friend or family member is suicidal? Erica, what can you tell us? Yes, um, we get calls all the time from um, concerned family members or friends. Um, so absolutely, you can feel free to call if you're concerned about um, a loved one. Um, we'll do one of two things. Um, you know, we'll um, definitely provide the caller with some interventions or some um, skills to be able to, um, you know, uh, extend to their family member or their loved one. And then also, too, we will ask, you know, if they, you know, would like for somebody to follow up with their family member or friend directly. Um, it's not necessary, but we definitely want to extend that opportunity if that's something that the caller is interested in. Aneri, what seems to be the driver behind whether states are are preparing to run these centers on their own or, or less prepared or, or not making a move in that direction? Frankly, the states that are on most states are seemingly un- unprepared in that in terms of the long-term funding piece, most states have not passed the le- uh, legislation that would allow that um, the way these are supposed to be funded long-term is uh, putting a small charge on folks' uh, phone bills, cell phone bills. Uh, and that's a very similar model to how 911 is funded in most states. And so it's, you know, it's Democratic states, it's Republican states that haven't passed that, it's rural states, it's it's uh, states with large urban centers. So it's kind of across the board that places haven't, um, a lot of places haven't taken that next step to think about, you know, long term, how do we fund this? Um, and how do we support it? And that includes, you know, how do we find staffing for this? So I don't know that it's a, it's a particular factor driving it other than historically, this is a system that, you know, has been underfunded, un- not highlighted. So I think what we have now is 988 is out there and it's that first step, which is wonderful, you know, um, making it easier and accessible, but it's overlaid on a system that is already very underfunded, inequ- inequitable in, in terms of the distribution of resources, depending on where you live and, and what communities you're in. So it's going to take a lot more attention to fix those other pieces and make 988 that what it was envisioned as this whole re-evaluation of our mental health system. We also got this email from George who says no one in Florida would call 988 because it means you will be Baker Acted, which requires three days in voluntary incarceration in a horrid place. I was Baker Acted by a cop who wanted to teach me a lesson, his words. I was not suicidal or did not present a threat to anyone. Erica, involuntary mental health treatment may be another fear for some people when calling for help. How do you respond to that concern? Yeah, I'm definitely uh, sorry to hear about those experiences. Um, you know, we want people to know that um, involuntary um, holds, again, it's like the super last resort. It is not the goal of 988. We want to be able to provide a, just a safe place for people to talk. But when people cannot confirm their safety, if when people, you know, have access to weapons and, you know, won't, you know, respond to our interventions to be able to keep themselves safe, that's when we, uh, you know, work with the mobile uh, crisis teams 
to be able to go in person to be able to assess the situation and see what's needed. And again, our, our hope is that if people need treatment, we can get them voluntarily to be able to, you know, maybe go to a hospital. Um, there's also urgent cares that people can go to. Um, we also work with um, a lot of different providers that will see someone like a mental health provider or a substance abuse provider that will see someone the same day. So it's not always a hospital um, hold uh, or a hospital visit. It's, you know, there's access to a number of different resources for people that might need it. James tweets, the part that worries us at crisis is that people believe that by calling the number, their problems will be solved instantly. There isn't enough psych hospitals and not nearly enough outpatient providers. Wait times for treatment is already measured in months, not hours or days. We've been talking a lot about the, the staffing shortages in other places where our mental health care system is, is lacking. The National Council for Mental Well-Being reported that 77% of counties in the U.S. are experiencing a severe shortage of mental health providers. But we also heard Health and Human Services Secretary Javier Becerra says, say the goal of 988 is to be part of a larger system of support. But in area, I mean, when we think about getting that system in, in place, how far is 400 plus million dollars going to go? It's really not enough, right? We're, we're talking about changing an entire continuum of care. The 400 plus million is, is really targeted at that first step, the 988, the having people call, but then you have mobile crisis teams. You have to have uh, outpatient psychiatrists, psychologists, therapists. Um, you have to have facilities that people can go to, telehealth options. This is all, it's staffing, it's infrastructure, it's uh, political will to support these things long term. There are so many other pieces that have to come together. And also, you know, pieces that are maybe at a broader societal level when we think about, you know, um, pe- to the to the quote that you read, you know, if someone calls 988 and hopes to have all their problems solved in one phone call, that's, that's unlikely, right? We need to think broadly. A lot of folks are talking about when we think about suicide prevention, can we think about providing someone rental assistance? Um, providing someone, you know, uh, help getting groceries or, or getting a job. Because if your life is unstable more broadly, if you don't have a safe place to live, if you don't have access to food, those are factors that are going to contribute to your mental health and push you towards that point of crisis. But our, our system right now is is focusing on that moment of crisis as a first step. And there's going to be a lot more funding, a lot more political will needed to address the the prevention steps earlier and the continuum of care afterwards. A 2021 study found suicide rates dropped for white Americans, but nearly doubled among African Americans. And last year, the U.S. Surgeon General released an advisory on the mental health of children and young adults. Suicide is now the second leading cause of death among 10 to 24 year olds. Erica, what will it take to create a system that can address the mental health crisis this country is is facing right now? Uh, Yeah, that's a great question. Um, You know, like she said, it's not enough. It's a great step. You know, the the money that the Biden administration has allowed is a great first step to be able to solve um, the crisis that's happening. But I also think that, you know, it shows that, um, you know, more and more people are getting help. I think that historically for black and brown communities, you know, we, you know, we have been sort of uh, afraid to be able to seek mental health services. And I think that as, you know, the country moves forward to being able to promote things like 988 and 
make people aware that it's okay to be in crisis. It's okay to need help. It's okay to, you know, have feelings and to, you know, be in these situations that more and more people are reaching out for services um, that did not reach out for services before. So again, it's a great first step. And we're just going to need to continue to talk about it. We're going to continue to need to partner together with our behavioral health providers. We're going to continue to need to move forward together, um, you know, with uh, the support of the government to be able to provide the necessary services. Sonia, in just a couple of sentences, what's your hope for 988 and, and what it can provide for people in a crisis? Yeah, so my hope for 988 is that um, it is not a one-size-fits-all approach, that it really um, is a a crisis line that attends to the needs of of diverse scholars um, and that it is able to connect them to local resources um, and diverse providers to meet their specific needs. Um, So I'm very hopeful that um, it will continue to increase the the call rate and people will feel more more comfortable calling, but that it will also connect them to resources and communities for which there might be more comfort for them. That's Sonia Richardson, a licensed clinical social worker. She's also a social work faculty member at University of North Carolina at Charlotte. Also with us, Erica Turner, the chief clinical officer at Community Crisis Services in Maryland, and Anari Patani, a reporter with Kaiser Health News. Thanks to you all. Today's producer was Michelle Harvin. This program comes to you from WAMU, part of American University in Washington, distributed by NPR. I'm Jen White. Thanks for listening, and we'll talk more soon. This is 1A.